Welcome to Out to Lunch with me, Jay Rayner, the podcast in which I treat my brilliant guests to top-notch food, either in a restaurant or, due to recent times, via a food delivery at home. While we dive into the starters or takeaway boxes, my guests open up like a clam. We become that table. You know, the one where you just want to lean in to hear every single spicy word. In season three, I brought you film director Edgar Wright on the importance of Brussels sprouts. But let's perform a detail on teas on why getting a cream pie in the face is so satisfying. Actress Faye Ripley on how she sold George Michael's sweaty towels and so very much more. Pre-lockdown, I joined Romesh Ranganathan at a table in New York and discussed subjects with Charlie Brooker that should probably never be attempted whilst wielding a knife and fork. Naturally, our eyes are bigger than our bellies and we simply couldn't fit it all in. So I'm here to tell you that second helpings are now on offer. Take a seat, napkin on lap. We're going in for another round of delicious extras. You are most welcome. Now, as I record this, some restaurants have opened again after lockdown, which is very good news. Whilst my producers have run off to their favourite haunts, I'm left recording this. So as usual, I shall wait for my doorbell to ring because it's lunchtime, of course, and I am starving. Oh, hang on. Sounds like they're, they're here. Can someone someone get that? No? Oh, look, can you hang on a moment? Right, lunch is here. Where were we? Ah, yes, to the very first interview I recorded for this series with the marvellous burlesque dancer, model and businesswoman, Dita Von Tees. When she arrived at Norma on Charlotte Street, London heads turned, including mine, when she let me try on her Alice band, complete with netted veil and pom-poms. I think it rather suited me, actually. Here she is, talking about one state in America that makes it impossible for her to perform there. And I'm here to tell you, it has nothing to do with the size of her entourage. I mean, I've always felt like between here and Paris, sort of, you know, people understood early on, whereas I'm still, you know, in America, they're still a little bit puritanical in some places. Like there's states I can't perform the show in. Oh, really? Yeah. Where can't you perform? Uh, Nashville poses a little bit of a problem. What are the laws in Nashville? Well, listen, I was like, I ha- I was go- trying to do it and I was trying to make it work and work around the, the laws because I think it's kind of fun to have to, you know, rise to the striptease challenge and change, uh, modify things. But I was honestly like, so I had a phone call with this theater, this big theater, and um, they said, well, you know, you can't show under boob. And I was like, that's fine. Well, you can't show too much cleavage. Okay. <laughs> Okay, well, you can't show, um, okay, you can't show your buttocks, but more than that, and I was like, that's fine, so like a bikini? No, you can't show that crease underneath the butt. Like, even if you were wearing a bikini, it's still not covering the part between Do your Do you not find yourself thinking how specifically somebody sat in a room deciding what they find offensive? Yeah, and then, so I said, well, like, can I wear tight, can we wear tights? Um, in the show and then we're no because we'll still see that line you know where your bum is and I was like okay and I said to them so you're talking like I have to wear like a bike shorts and they said yeah I just couldn't wrap my head around how to make pants or bike shorts look sexy and then you know what I said to them I said what are the parameters for the men in the show Uh, Ah. because I have just as many men in the show as women uh, I mean, I think it's just like they can't show full frontal nudity, like no pubic hair and whatnot. And I was like, are you serious? So they can be practically in yeah, tiny speedos yeah. uh-huh. and yeah. you have to be in a shroud. 
Yes, basically. <laughs> do not show that crease in the buttock, which is okay to show at the pool or the beach or whatever or on TV, but like, don't show that in our theater. So it's really... it makes you kind of wonder just how uptight they are in Tennessee mm-hmm. and who is sitting around holding. Hang on, it is the 21st century, isn't it? A lot of it has to do with liquor. And to be fair, most things do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, to be fair, they have you. Know, oh, if, if it were a dry show it would be okay. But if there's booze involved, there's all these rules. Oh, God. And I was honestly like, I'm not doing a burlesque show with no booze. I'm not bathing in a big champagne glass while everyone's like thirsty, you know? So you've said to this day, you've never performed in Tennessee. No, I have. I performed at strip clubs in the nineties. Oh, right. Okay. But it's different. There was no booze. I have a really dry strip clubs. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of dry strip clubs. Yeah, and they're usually like the most, you know, they're the they're the nudie bars. You can be buck naked. Girls can be eighteen to work there, whereas in the ones with alcohol, you have to be twenty one and more covered. So it's like, how do you figure? You're going to put the eighteen year old girls, throw them to the wolves in the nudie bar, where it's like legs splayed, anything goes, or are you going to be twenty one and work with the alcohol without taking anything? I just never made sense to me. It's really backwards. A challenge that a humble restaurant critic like me never has to solve, thankfully. Luckily, Dieter is getting to perform in all kinds of other wonderful establishments next year. For more information, visit Dieter.net. And so to our first lockdown remote record with a very patient participant, the film director and screenwriter of Baby Driver, Scott Pilgrim and Hot Fuzz, it's Edgar Wright. During the recording, Edgar told us that it was 16 years ago to that day that Shaun of the Dead was released. And whilst the streets outside were eerily quiet, life imitating art, we were lucky enough to feast on, no, not cornettos, but wonderful dim sum from Hackersan. Here's Edgar talking about the time a certain Mr Spielberg asked him to pen a screenplay, the CGI version of Tintin sharing writing credits with Joe Cornish. I asked Edgar whether he enjoyed the process. I've never written for anybody else, or like not, in, not yep. intentionally, but yeah, it's exactly that. When you get the call from Spielberg and Peter Jackson to say, "Do you want to write Tintin?" I was like, "You can't, you can't say no." And also, it was a great experience. I mean, it was originally supposed to be me and Simon writing it, but Simon was like busy filming, maybe like Mission Impossible or something else, but he wasn't really available. So I suggested Joe Cornish, who at that time had we'd we'd written a screenplay together, but he hadn't actually made a film at that point. And because he was like a massive Tintin nut. I mean, I love the Tintin books, but Joe like really knew them inside out. So he was very impressive in a meeting. And the the one thing that we did, which I always regret, I should have done this for Spielberg and it would have been really embarrassing, but so worth it, is that me and Joe would write the uh, script for Tintin and we would sit there and we would act it out like it was a radio play the entire time. And you can imagine what fun it is just sitting there and doing Tintin's voice all the time. Okay, Snowy. And just like doing the Tintin voice and doing the... Who took Tintin? Was it you uh, or was it Joe? I think we'd go in... I think we'd um, swap. I think Joe was better at doing Haddock. So <laughs> I would I would usually do Tintin. What we should have done, and it would have been so silly, but we should have acted it out for them. I mean, I know like Tintin is Belgium, but in your head, it sounds like Enid Blyton, doesn't it? Like kind of, no, of course it's it sort does. of like Tintin, even though it's Belgian, it's, it feels very British and you kind of act it out like you're doing the famous five. It, w- it was, was it live action shot re-rendered as CGI then? Yes, they did that kind of motion capture thing. And obviously, you know, Andy Serkis, who's gone on to kind of 
win a BAFTA for like his services in this, but you know that he he was in the movie playing Haddock. So it's the motion capture. So people are wearing the suits with the dots all over them, and um, it's a very very um, complicated. It's in an Egyptian town. As soon as they'd finished it, it was the one thing they finished, and it looked extraordinary. And then there was the Japanese tsunami. I want to say in 2011, and because of that, and because of obviously like horrific images of like sort of uh, mudslides uh, all over like sort of uh, the TV. They said, we're going to have to change the mudslide sequence. And I was like, oh boy. And I said, I, like, I totally understood. And I just thought, I can't imagine being in that room when the animators who've just spent like nine months doing the sequence, somebody comes and says, okay, a bit of news, guys. Uh, the mudslide <laughs> sequence is going and it's going to change into something else. I think it turned into like, I can't remember, it turned into an earthquake or, or something different. But like, so there's those things that happen with those movies where you, you, you know, you see like a finished version of a scene and then it's like, ah, there's a slight hitch. Imagine doing comedy character voices in front of Steven Spielberg. In fact, I do a rather mean Michael Winner, but maybe later. It's always lovely to have people on the show who really like their food. In spite of advice to the contrary from her acting agent, the Cold Feet actress Faye Ripley has written three cookbooks. Not the dumb thing, apparently, although that didn't stop Gwyneth Paltrow. Whilst trying the food sent to us from Benares in Mayfair, quite frankly, I think she was trying to steal my job as a judge on MasterChef. It will never happen. I asked Faye about her other presenting gigs and a certain show called Sofa Melt. It was in the, sort of like a Jerry Springery Oprah-esque. So it was real people and, you know, we would have people coming on because they'd lost weight or they'd split up. It was all very raucous and crowd-led and crazy that I was doing it. At that point, I'd never been a presenter. I, I auditioned for that from thousands of people or whatever. And I do love presenting from those days. I, I, I've continued to sort of dabble in it because I actually really like it. But the you've taken the main position on the one show three times, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's sort of it's it's a kind of adrenaline that I I get off on. I really like it. That show in particular, Sofamil, once. We had three women who'd been going out with their partners for years and the partners had never asked them to, to marry them. And on the show, we got the male counterparts to propose to the women. Then How did we, that go? Well, we stuck them all three into ill-fitting, nasty, cheap wedding dresses. The women asked the men. Two of the chaps said yes. We then got a vicar on the show immediately. Out he came. He married them. We had all their family there. But one poor woman, he said no. We made her, in her ill-fitting wedding dress, go to the other two's weddings. She cried all the way through all of them. And it was cruel. And that, that You're was an when, awful, awful person, favourite well, was when How did you feel realized, about that? I, 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 I got out of the show and I went to the um, production meeting with my agent and she went, they're going to ask to commission another 60 of your, these shows. And they might want to call it phase sofa melt. And it was all going to sort of ramp up. And I said, OK. And we, I remember crossing the road in Notting Hill. And I went, just go with whatever I do. And she went, what are you going to do? I went, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. Just go with it. And I went into the room and literally had a nervous breakdown. I went, 
I'm I'm unstable. I can't do it. Um, it all these people's lives mean too much to me. Anyway, and because I showed sort of like I wasn't going to cope. Basically, they they said I they didn't they took it off the slate. And let's be absolutely clear here. When you say you had a nervous breakdown, do you mean that you gave the performance of a lifetime absolutely. to get yourself out of a show? Absolutely. Rather than sitting there and saying. No, I don't want to do this. Yeah. No, I do. Just, you know, like I said, I always want a round of applause. I mean, honestly, my agent thought it was marvellous. Now, you don't want to hear what Faye compared her dessert, the Gulab Jamun, to, do you? Oh, you do? Well, go back and listen to the full episode then. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. What you may not know is that when not in lockdown, we eat in PDRs or private dining rooms at restaurants. It's a noise and a fame thing. And as you'd expect, the Black Mirror writer and creator Charlie Brooker tended towards the dark side of conversation. All manner of subjects were brought to the table at Chutney Mary in London. Thankfully, only our engineer, producer and myself could hear what was being recorded. Otherwise, there may well have been some walkouts. Here we are discussing Charlie's father, who was a social worker. I asked him if his dad had ever brought any of his work home with him. Only once, and in very dramatic fashion, one day and again in my memory it's it's fuzzy as to what happened whether I answered the door or my mother answered the door but it was the nightmare of a policeman standing there all right okay and he'd been stabbed by a policeman had no my dad had been stabbed right um he was fine like well it wasn't fine he'd been stabbed what I mean is now he's fine um he wasn't dead no he wasn't dead but he'd been stabbed and he'd had his face slashed open as well with a Stanley knife by a guy, this is great, we're touching on all the dinner time topics. Good, 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 good. He was driving some kids to the foster home and somehow their biological father, who was a dangerous guy, had found out the address of this place and was waiting, armed with with a Stanley knife. And so he stabbed my dad in the stomach, slashed his face, stole the car and was driving around. So the police showed up at our house. Stole the car with his kids in it, the ones he, your dad was trying to get to the foster home. You know what? I don't know that right. detail. That detail didn't interest me at the time. Well, that's <laughs> not unreasonable. Your first thought um, is your, your poor old yeah. dad. Yeah, that can't have helped with the neuroses. Was I mean, he permanently scarred by that? Yes, but you can't see it. He, he, he always had a beard anyway. Did you then become concerned about... His job about dad's going out to work and what's going to happen to him next. Oddly, no, because it seemed so unlikely that it happened in the first place. Because um, this is Oxfordshire, it was like leafy sort of South Oxfordshire. It was so outside of our normal realm of experience that it didn't seem an event that would likely repeat itself. And I think when you're someone who is quite neurotic and anxious about things, when something terrible happens, you're sort of not that surprised. Keep it light, Charlie. Keep it light. Opening takeaway boxes with my old mate Jessie Buckley was delightful. She's the supremely talented star of Wild Rose, Beast and Chernobyl. We ate Vietnamese food remotely from Kai Tre for Jessie and Ban Ban for me and talked about many topics, including our mutual love of music. Jessie entered the spotlight when she came second place in the BBC talent show I'd Do Anything. I asked Jessie whether both Cameron McIntosh and Andrew Lloyd Webber, the show's judges, had stayed in touch with her. And the Nancy she mentions in this clip is for the West End musical Oliver. Yeah, they've been lovely. And, right, quietly supportive. And I remember when Cameron said, do you want to understudy and for Nancy? And 
I don't know what the hell I was thinking, but I thought what you did in those circumstances, even though I had Lindy King, my agent, who's wonderful, I, I I thought what you did with them was kind of go around to their house and give, have a cup of tea and say, no, thank you very much. <laughs> and so I remember like turning up at Cameron's front, front door of his office and knocking on the door and saying, oh, I, I just don't think it's the right thing to do for me right now. Was he in? He was yeah, so you knocked on the door. And, <laughs> we usually, uh, you know, and- your agent does that or something but I I mean I was completely stupid <laughs> but he was fine <laughs> he about it. Up and said, but you thought you were doing the polite thing didn't you I was doing the Kerry thing <laughs> you know you go around <laughs> with a, a cake and a loaf of brown bread and say I don't think this is going to work out <laughs> <laughs> and if you haven't seen the film Wild Rose yet with Jesse do it do it now who needs Cameron anyway Hello, dear lunchers. A quick word about something rather exciting. It's a new range of out-to-lunch merchandise that has landed and it's ready for you to get your greedy mitts on. I've got it here. There's a smart-looking apron in rugged denim with pockets. From now on, I'll wear nothing else. A brilliantly made travel cup. We all need to drink on the go. Water, wine, put what you like in it. I don't care. I'm not your dad. And a beautifully soft tea towel so you can think of me while you caress your finest kitchenware. These are quality items, people. The kind of things that once you You've used you'll be dreaming of using again and again and branded with your favorite podcast too what's not to love to browse the range and purchase your heart's content head to outtolunch.backstreetmerch.com that's outtolunch or one word dot backstreetmerch all one word dot com get them while they're hot cold or tepid and do tweet me your photos showing them off too but now it's back to lunch In the heady days before lockdown, I travelled to New York, and not one to miss an opportunity, had lunch with comedian Ramesh Ranganathan, who also happened to be in town. Whilst dining at Crown Shy in Lower Manhattan, we talked about veganism, stand-up, and all things Crawley, his hometown. I asked Ramesh if Crawley, for the uninitiated, it's 45 kilometres from London and not far from Gatwick Airport, was where his parents first met. No, so my mum and dad met in Sri Lanka, and then my dad came over when he was in his early 20s to finish off his accountancy qualifications. And he was living in North London. And then when my mum came over, they moved to Crawley. I, I've never really got a clear answer from either of them as to why they chose Crawley, but... Um, Has it been one of the subjects that your, your questing soul has wanted an answer to? Well, I just don't understand it. You know, like, I sort of... I, I, it's affected... You know, I'm still there. I still live in Crawley now. And I don't know what my kids would do, but they're at school in Crawley, so they're going to be in Crawley for the foreseeable. And so I saw it's had a big impact. And well, it was the title of your autobiography. Yes, straight exactly. Out of Crawley. Exactly. Obviously, a reference to your love of hip hop yeah. as well. But it's a weird one, Crawley, because I love it, but I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> you know, like so. So people go to me, "Are you ever going to move out of Crawley?" I think, well, I don't think so. Have you and your other half, Lisa, ever thought about moving away? Or- we once, when we first got together, talked about possibly moving to Australia for a short time. That's a radical response to Crawley, I must I say. I think we, our reaction to Crawley was so strong. <laughs> and we'd built up so much resentment. But then, actually, I, I, I remember I was driving home from a gig and I drove past Rusper, and I know Rusper quite well, but it's this little village outside of Crawley, and it's lovely. And the next day I went to see my mum for lunch... 
with Lisa and I mentioned, I said, oh, Rusper's nice. I said, I wouldn't mind like sort of maybe looking around there, seeing if there's anywhere to live there. You know, I'd quite, I'd quite like to live there maybe. It's uh, 10 minutes further away. I mean, we're talking, what, three miles from yeah. Crawley? Yeah. My mum yeah. absolutely lost her shit. She said, oh, OK, fine. So that you're moving away. I said, Mum, I'm not moving away. I said, I've literally just said, wouldn't it be possibly nice to move to Rusburg? She was, like, furious. So I actually think I'm... I actually think, essentially, I'm a, I'm a prisoner. Shanti, is that right? Is yeah. That how, how far away from her do you live in Crawley? <laughs> Can you walk it? You, it's about... I'd say it's about half an hour walk, yeah. Half an Maybe hour slightly longer, yeah. But I've never walked it. What, because you want a car outside so you can get away quickly? I just think it's good to have an exit strategy, you know? <laughs> I don't know if it's a, it's a Sri Lankan thing, but it doesn't matter what you're turning up to my mum's house for. That, whatever that can, will expand to fill the entire day. So, so basically, the, the trick is, if you, if you want to minimise your time at my mum's house, you go, to the, you go to dinner. If you go to breakfast... Oh, right, you're that's, still, the, that's the rest of the day. You're gone. still going to leave at the same time. Not that I'm trying to minimise my time with my mum. It does sound like it. If I'm no, honest. no, no, I love, I, I love my mum to bits, but... She, but Sri Lankan get-togethers take an eternity. Weirdly, despite reviewing restaurants for The Observer for over 20 years, I've never reviewed anywhere in Crawley. This means either there are no interesting restaurants in Crawley or I am profoundly prejudiced against Crawley. I suppose you call it Crawleyist. Um, should we go with the latter? Here's Edgar Wright again. We talked about many aspects of the film industry and I was particularly curious to know what it would feel like to be in charge of a major budget Hollywood picture. So I asked him what the advertised budget of his movie Baby Driver was. Listen to just how nonchalantly he responds. I think it's like 35 million. The point I was asking about was whether you, you have to just remove that thought, that number from your head when you're conducting a very large crew on a very detailed movie with car chase and all that stuff. Well, the truth of it is, is the baby driver, for what's actually in that movie, it probably should have cost twice what it actually did. If you speak to people in the industry who watch Baby Driver and you tell them, like, what it costs, they say, wow, it looks like it costs twice that. And it's like, well, good. The pressure is less about the amount of money. It's more about we only have this amount of time to kind of deliver something which has to stand up against movies that are, like, two or three times more expensive. So actually, the most expensive movie I've made to date is still Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which probably cost, you know, nearly twice what Baby Driver did. You know, that movie did not make us money back, but I'm incredibly proud of that one. And it, 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 was, it came out 10 years ago this year. It is one of those movies when I look at it, I'm like thinking, wow, how the hell did we make that? It seems so complicated. <laughs> when it came out, it did not do like as, as well as everybody would have liked. And that was like a bummer. But it was felt very quickly became kind of culty in terms of even like by the end of the same year, it was already like playing like midnights in like cinemas. Head of marketing at Universal the Studio sent me this email on the Monday morning after it came out. And the email only said this. It said, years, not days. <laughs> <laughs> and that made me feel so much better because it's like it was actually the sweetest thing he could have done is just to send that email it said years, not days. Do you think it will have earned, earned out in the end when it's, you know, you look at all the streaming sales and all that? Maybe it'd be like Rocky Horror Show where it doesn't go into profit for like 20, 30 years. But like, the fact is it's still playing and that's really great. Edgar Wright there. Now, a few clips ago, mention was made of Shanti, Ramesh Ranganathan's mother, who's become a bit of a TV star in her own right. 
When I met up with Ramesh in New York, I wanted to find out what his reaction had been to his mum being a natural in front of the camera and how it all came about. I've been approached to do a travel show and the idea for the, the travel show at that point was to just go to Asia. It was, no, it was nothing beyond that, really. It's like Ramesh travels around Asia. And at that time, I'd started doing this stand-up, this stand-up routine about my mum being very annoyed that I wasn't in touch with my culture as, as, I, as she'd like, and that she'd started calling me a coconut, brown on the outside, white on the inside, right? And so... Had she? Yeah, yeah, she had, yeah, yeah. She sort of joked about it, but, you know, that was... She wasn't saying it as an... I, I have no expectation that material on stage actually is a reflection <laughs> yeah, of... We sort of talked about that, and we decided that would be, the, that would be a good starting point for a travel show, because you've got a reason then. So it's me going to Sri Lanka to get in touch with my culture. And so the BBC asked us to do a little taster tape, it was me talking to my mum and her talk, talking to me about what she wanted me to do in Sri Lanka. And then I went off and sort of learnt a bit of Tamil and stuff like that. Has she hesitated at any point? I'll tell you something. She is so up for it, it's terrifying. <laughs> she's almost announcing herself into rooms in case people don't recognise her, you know? She's, uh, she loves it. I know all about mums with magnetic personalities, of course. Barely an out-to-lunch goes by without someone mentioning my dear mum, Claire. Which leads us on to our penultimate clip. When I had lunch with Jessie Buckley, I mentioned that she very kindly sang at the memorial show at the Criterion Theatre for my late mum. She sang the trolley song and the man who got away and literally stopped the show. There was rapturous applause. Well, that night, someone came backstage and asked Jessie to take a curtain call, and she wouldn't. I asked Jessie if she could remember who that certain someone was. Uh, I think it was Stephen Fry. <laughs> and you, um, but you didn't. And I was eternally grateful for you because I was, I was producing that night and trying to keep it running. Um, and, <laughs> I'm and just always thinking about you, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you didn't. And it was actually the most professional thing I've I, you know, ever seen you do. An amazing performance. There's a story from the next day in the Ivy Club. Sandy Toxvig, who was also on the bill, is sitting with her agent and says, there is this amazing young woman I saw last night called Jessie Buckley. Um, and you really ought to take her on your books. And the hilarious thing was that you already were. And Lindy King then called you and said, did you do something last night? Because at no point did you actually told your agent that you were about to go and sing at the Criterion Theatre on stage. Yeah. Is that true? That's very true. That sounds quite about, about, I think she says the same thing to me now. Have you done something? (laughs) Quite possibly. Let's finish where we began with a few more words from the glorious Dieter von Tees. When I asked her about the show Crazy Horse, it led to a surprising detail about one of her family members. Here she is. I remember when I first went to Paris... I kept asking people about this place with, like, naked toy soldiers because I didn't know what it was, you know? There was no internet or anything. I could, like, look it up or whatever. Um, and I remembered, like, a little picture in my dad's Playboy magazine of the girls, you know, in the... God Do you know, I was going to ask you whether your dad had a, a stash of Playboy oh, yeah. somewhere away. Yeah, yeah, was That's that why first... I was finally legitimized when I was on the cover of Playboy. My dad was like, OK, I guess this is a real job. <laughs> so uh, are they still with us, your parents? Yeah. And uh, uh, how do they relate to their I mean, they're, you know, they've all been to the shows. You know, my dad's a little bit tougher, you know, I guess it's with good reason. But I think the last time he came to see the show, he was with his wife and his daughter. And, you know, they were all, all the family was there. And, you know, I think people, when they see the show, it's not, even though it is burlesque and a striptease show, it's kind of like the nudity is almost like 
you don't really notice it in a way because it's so much spectacle and fun and frivolity and I don't think people really get hung up on the nudity because it's so, it's just not the, the main reason people come to the show. When you say he's tough, do you mean he's giving you notes? No. <laughs> Imagine that. No. <laughs> just, it's always hard to get your, you know, we have a long history, you know, from like, don't sure. hang, wash your underwear and hang them up in your bathroom. It's offensive, you know. Right. It's like, my dad's not always easy. He's from a different time, you know. And there we must leave it. Thank you to all my wonderful guests and to all of the restaurants who have been part of this series, whether we're eating at theirs or at ours. We'll be back for Series 4 in September. Yes, I know, we just don't stop serving you. But if you still want more in the interim, do feast yourselves on previous episodes from Series 1, 2 and 3 and tell all your friends and please comment and give us a review. I don't know, five stars? Is it too much to ask? Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producers were Rosie Marotra and Jemima Rathbone. The producer is Selena Reem. The executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. <laughs>